good day to you. Hope you're having a good one. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. We are doing this a little bit earlier than normal. Still be out there for you to listen to all week. The Bills, they got themselves a win yesterday. We'll talk about that, certainly. Jim Harbaugh isn't somebody I uh, tend to root for. And considering his paycheck versus his performance in big games, I'm not sure many people who wear those maize and blue uniforms and sweatshirts and all those things should root for him either. He's a guy I just don't think is uh, giving his employer the bank for the buck that they deserve. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Week eight, of course, we're going to break that down. And the NBA is going to make a colossal error, in my opinion, over dollars. Now, it's a lot of dollars, but we'll talk about it. You know, it's funny. Here we are in November, and this time of year always gets me because we end up with so much gray weather. We end up with the weather being a little darker than normal. And, of course, now the clocks have fallen back. Daylight savings time. Five o'clock tonight, it's going to be pitch black. This is a time of year where I, I just I don't need it. I don't need the darkness. I want sunshine. Fortunately, this week we're going to get a lot of it, and that's a good thing. But, man, this time of year, it is tough. Just remember, December 21st, we start to go the other way. Days get a little longer. We get a little more sunshine, and that gets us through the winter. So let's get into it. The Bills have now finished the first half of the 2020 season. And a couple remarkable things. One is they played every game on their schedule. And I think that's important in this year of COVID and everything else that's going on. The second thing is, is that when you look at the Bills and you look at what they've done and how they've proceeded, they've been successful. They're 6-2. and two. And yesterday they beat the Patriots. And that's one of those games, I think, that as we look back, it's going to be a big game for the Bills because I think it's a hurdle they had to get over. I talked about it last week on the podcast with the Patriots. It's it's the bully down the street. When you grew up and there was a bully and that bully picked on you, that bully was going to pick on you until you punched him in the mouth and then you became the guy in charge. The Bills did that yesterday. Now that punch in the mouth it was a little bit of a soft jab. It wasn't a knockout punch. And while I wanted to see something more impressive, at this point, I'll take whatever I could get. It was a win, and that's all that matters. And to me, you know, here's where we get into semantics a little bit. Yeah, we all wanted a blowout. We all wanted a, a pretty win. We all wanted all the things to look great. Well, it's not the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is that the Bills had themselves an opportunity to beat a team that's not as good as they did. And the reality of the situation is they got to win. And now they finished the first half of the season at 6 and 2. So, it's it's a good step. It wasn't what we wanted. It wasn't aesthetically pleasing, but I found some bright spots, and believe me, I'm not all going to be happy about this. The defense I'm going to get to is not good at all, and that's going to be a lasting problem. The trade deadline's tomorrow, and hopefully Brandon Bean's got something that's going to help out. But when you look at what happened yesterday and how it happened 
for the Bills. The fact that the Bills looked at the Patriots' defense, Brian Dable and Josh Allen, to his credit at the line of scrimmage, checking out of plays, you're going with what the uh, the defense is giving you. When the Patriots' defense is lining up six and seven defensive backs on early downs, you simply have to run the football. And that's why it's so important, and I talked about this a few weeks ago in the podcast, it's so important to be multiple offensively, to be able to beat your opponent in many different ways. Bills hadn't been able to do that much this year. Zach Moss was injured early on. The offensive line had some fluctuations. Well, yesterday, the offensive line, I want to start there. Mitch Morse got hurt three plays into the game. You get a concussion. He's had concussion issues. And if you remember the start of training camp last year, he didn't get much time in training camp because he was out for a while for a concussion that he suffered in practice. So hopefully that's not going to be the case again with this concussion. This is something that concerns me greatly because Mitch Morse is a really good player up front. But John Feliciano came back. He had pectoral injury. This is his first game back. He made the start at left guard. He then was somebody who replaced Morse and Ryan Bates at center for the rest of the game. And and Feliciano brings an attitude, brings a toughness to that unit. And I think he's a guy who's respected by his peers. I think he brings that attitude and sends a message with that attitude and becomes a leader because of that. And I think we saw that yesterday, a physicalness up front that maybe we haven't seen for much of this year. So I was very pleased with the play of the offensive line going against the Patriots front that is pretty stout. You know, when we talk about the Patriots, they're not your father's Patriots. They're not a team that I think has a chance to win the Super Bowl this year and maybe not next year or a couple years. To me, they look like a team that needs to rebuild on the offensive side of the ball. But defensively, they're still pretty stout. And I thought the fact that the Bills were able to run it as well as they did. Both Moss and Devin Singletary, over 80 yards, by far the best we've seen Zach Moss look. There was a lot of talk coming out of camp. He may end up being RB1. I thought that was preposterous because of what Devin Singletary showed last year. Well, yesterday you see RB1 and you see why there's power, there's speed, there's elusiveness. There's a lot of things to like about Zach Moss, 14 carries, 81 yards, two touchdowns. Very good performance by him. Singletary also had 86 yards. So you look at those two, you throw Josh Allen in, the Bills ran for 190 yards. And possibly as important or almost more important, in my opinion, was the number of times they ran. 34 times, I'm sorry, 38 times, the three of those players, Allen, Moss, and Singletary, ran the football. That, to me, shows Josh Allen, Brian Dable, taking what the defense gives them and looking at their offense as something multiple. And I think that's really, really important, especially as we get to, as I mentioned at the start of the show, the weather starting to change. Yesterday was a day where when I woke up in the morning and heard the wind howling, I thought, well, I hope they can run the football today because New England is going to be able to, and if the Bills can't, then there's going to be a big problem. 
Unfortunately, they did. When you run the ball for 188 yards the way, 190 yards, I should say, the way the Bills did yesterday, you're doing something right. Now, that's a really good thing. You look at Allen, he only threw the ball 18 yards. And it's funny how I'm hearing today how Josh Allen has cooled off and he's regressed. Look, Josh Allen, through the first half of the season, if I had told you his numbers were going to be what they are in a half a season, you, you'd have said, oh, sign me up for that. I mean, 67% completion percentage, 2,172 yards. So he's on a 4,400-yard pace for the, the regular season. 16 touchdowns, five interceptions, 102.4 quarterback rating. You look around the NFL – Lamar Jackson's regressed. Baker Mayfield certainly regressed. Sam Darnold is, is a lost soul, and I know that the Jets are not a good team. But Sam's not a good player right now either. The best player right now out of that quarterback grouping is not Lamar Jackson. It's Josh Allen. And I don't think many people would agree with that at the start of the year, but I think now you'd have to at least give it credence because – you look at what Lamar has done, and you look at this year, it's not gone as well. I'll get into that later. But Josh Allen has been more than good enough to win football games for the Bills. And yesterday, what I really liked, again, was his ability and willingness to change out of bad looks at the, at the line of scrimmage and put the Bills in a situation where they're simply going to have success. Now, Again, this is Brian Dable and Josh Allen. Dable's making the calls. Allen's going up to the line, seeing what's there. The two of them work well together, and they did yesterday. And I just think, again, this is something that the Bills have to do as we get deeper into the regular season. Now the weather is going to be a factor in a lot of games. Unfortunately, I, I kind of wish it was going to be next Sunday when the Bills play Seattle, but it looks like it could potentially be 70 degrees. So you want to do anything you can to try to slow down DK Metcalf and Russell Wilson when they come in. That's the good. The downside, of course, is the defense. And yesterday I was convinced that the Patriots are going to win this game and they were going to get it done late because the Bills simply could not stop the run. When you look at the Patriots roster, there's a lot of names you know. How many people, raise your hand, didn't know who Damian Harris was before yesterday's game? Uh, me, I, I didn't. Damian Harris ran for 102 yards on 16 carries. Cam Newton ran for 54. Rex Burkhead, 26. The Bills can't stop the run. I talked about yes last week how there's 23% of the salary cap being used on that defensive line bills aren't getting banged for the buck if it wasn't for the cheapest investment on that offensive line on that defensive line that the bills have one justin zimmer i think we're talking today about a different scenario justin zimmer's hustle play that ended up with a cam newton fumble ends up giving the bills the win and cements the bills victory that way Huge turn of events, and one that, frankly, I'm sh I was shocked at. I did not see it coming whatsoever. But a great play by Zimmer, the guy who's getting a little bit more playing time, 
the the problem to me with the Bills is defensive line oriented. You look at Jerry Hughes, and again, Hughes had a great game again yesterday, coming off his Player of the Week honors for the week before. Hughes was excellent yesterday. Trent Murphy's given the Bills next to nothing. The the pass rush outside of Jerry Hughes, if it's not blitz created, is generally pretty weak. Ed Oliver may be doing good things that a great football eye can see, but I got to tell you, for a guy who's a ninth overall pick, we're now a year and a half into his career, Ed Oliver's been a disappointment. You could count the number of big plays Ed Oliver's made in a year and a half on one hand, and you might have a couple fingers left over. Tremaine Edmonds yesterday was getting pushed around all over the field. I know he's hurt, and I understand that he's trying to play through things. But when you look at those two picks, two top 20 picks, they're two guys right now that need to play better. If this defense is going to play better, those are two guys who should be able to raise the level of their game. These are two guys who you have to make a decision in a couple of years on Oliver and after this year on Edmonds if you're going to extend a fifth-year option. Uh, you look at the Bills. They had two first-round picks. They've got a decision to make on Josh Allen, and I think that's turning into somewhat of a no-brainer. I'm not sure they'll go the Patrick Mahomes route and give him that $400 million deal. Frankly, I would not. Let him play out his fourth year, let him play out his fifth year, and then sign him. I, I think the, the amount of money you tie up at a quarterback sometimes cripples a franchise because of that. So to me, Allen's trending as the no-brainer you're picking up his fifth option fifth-year option, Edmonds, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure what I've seen from Tremaine Edmonds to make me think that this guy is turning the corner. He's better than he was last year, but I don't think he's anywhere near the player he can be or was projected to be when the Bills drafted him out of Virginia Tech. Then there's the Matt Milano situation. Milano is a much better player than we all thought when he was drafted out of BC. Now, here's the problem. He's been hurt, and you saw it yesterday as he tried to make a tackle one arm. He just doesn't have the strength because of the pectoral muscle. He's out there gutting it out, but he's not the same guy. And this, in my opinion, is the second-best defensive player on the Bills' team. I think their best defensive player should be Tredavious White, and I think he is, and I think Milano's second. But with him being hurt, it is a significant factor that he's not nearly as effective. And, and then you throw the other linebacker in, and i got to get to this. A.J. Klein might be the nicest guy in the world. I don't know A.J. Klein. I don't know anything about him. I know Sean McDermott talks about what a valuable piece of the puzzle he is. A.J. Klein can't be your starting linebacker if you're a playoff team. Just can't be. He just isn't good enough to be a starting linebacker on a good football team. And, and I don't think that's a big negative or a big terrible thing. This guy could play special teams. There's a role for him on the team. But if he's your starting linebacker, you're in trouble. And the, too many times yesterday, A.J. Klein had an opportunity to play, make a play, and he wasn't able to do it. Again, it comes back to Justin Simmons. Zimmer makes the hustle play on a play, by the way, when you watch that, if you want to 
argue with me about Tremaine Edmonds and where you see him. Watch Tremaine Edmonds just get driven back down the field on that play. Can't get off the block. It is just getting pushed out of the screen of the TV. Dean Marlowe was filling in for Micah Hyde, comes up and makes the big play, and the Bills get the win. And that's all that matters. Nothing else matters other than the W. And, and while we all want it to be more aesthetically pleasing and we all want it to be something where it's a big blowout, it's not. It's not going to always be that way. When we get into week six, I'll talk or week eight, I'll talk more about this. But there were some strange scores yesterday. Cincinnati routing Tennessee was one of those. Wait, what? So the Bills took care of business. Now you look at the AFC East at the halfway point for the Bills. They're six and two. Miami's four and three, and their defense is coming. The Patriots have talked a lot about they're two and five, and frankly, I think they're done. As a, as a team that's been a Super Bowl contender now for the better part of 20 years, this is a team that needs to change the way they do things. Bill Belichick, the coach, has saved Bill Belichick, the general manager, from being fired for years. And, and that's becoming a big problem. And then, of course, you have the 0-8, perfect, unblemished New York Jets. The Bills' second-half schedule is going to be tough. Next week, they have Seattle at home. And, and Seattle's 6-1. and one. They're an excellent football team. Russell Wilson is playing the best football of any quarterback so far this year. D.K. Metcalf is an absolute specimen. Tyler Lockett is a great second piece. The defense doesn't have the players they used to have but they do just enough and give Wilson the ball when he needs it to make plays and get a win. Then they go to Arizona, and Kyler Murray has been really good, and they're still beatable. They need a pass rush. Without Caldwell Jones, they're not the same. Chandler Jones, I'm sorry, Caldwell Jones, the old 76ers center. Yeah, I went back in time on that one. Chandler Jones are not the same pass rush team, but this is a team that's dangerous. The Chargers will find a way to lose, so the Bills need to take advantage of that game after the bye. Then it's out to San Francisco to play the 49ers. If Jimmy Garoppolo is the quarterback, the 49ers are much better than they are with Nick Mullins, even though Mullins might be a better passer than Garoppolo. Garoppolo's got a little bit of an it factor that allows him to get things done. And then, of course, you've got the Denver Broncos. And if you saw that yesterday, if you watched the end of that Chargers-Broncos game, Drew Locke has a little it factor. He did some great things at the end of that game to give the Broncos a chance to win the game. Really, really impressive. And then you finish up at New England and against Miami. Combined record for the second half opponents is 33-24, and 24, nine games over 500. First half opponents were 27-34, and 34, seven games under 500. Now, it's a little misleading, I guess, because the Jets, two games, they're 0-16. You take that out, it's a 27-18 and record. So statistically speaking, both the first half of the schedule and the second half are fairly equal if you eliminate the Jets from the statistic portion of it. So the Bills look to be in good shape going into the second half. The offensive line 
much better, like I said, with Feliciano. He gives you that attitude, gives you the edge. You think about the guard play with now it's Brian Winters, and if Morse is there, it's Feliciano. Yesterday, Feliciano at center, and it's Ike Bodiger in there as well. It's, it's a much different setup for the guards than opening day. Of course, it was Quentin Spain and Cody Ford. And Ford is hurt right now, and Spain's in Cincinnati. So this is something that the Bills have made a little bit of a switch on the fly. And again, I think having John Feliciano, that running or that that attitude, that toughness, the physicalness he brings along, was something very much needed, especially in the running game. And we saw it yesterday. They'll need to run the ball to keep Russell Wilson off the field. I think they need to do the same thing against Kyler Murray in another week after that too. So having Feliciano back and healthy is going to be huge going forward. The running backs yesterday we saw, there's there's capable backs. Both Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, I think, can be a good running back. They're only as good as their offensive line, but the Bills need to trust them too, and Brian Dayball needs to trust them as well. And I think, again, I keep saying about the weather – as I look out the window and it's snow fluttering down right now, the later in the season you get to be able to run the football is only going to help. Josh Allen's arm is a, is definitely a, an asset when it comes to throwing the ball. In days like yesterday where the wind was so extreme, but if you could run the ball, it's going to help you out a lot, and especially if the defense is going to be a problem going forward Running the football will certainly help mitigate some of the problems they have defensively. So good stuff with the running backs. The wide receiver group, having John Brown back was a huge thing. It was really, really impressive. It was great to see all these different routes that were being run, even if they didn't have a big payoff. You know, Stefan Diggs early on was getting a lot more action down the field. Defenses have adjusted. And you saw what the Patriots did to take that away. The Bills end up making plays. The tight end position is in position of need. And I know a lot of people love Dawson Knox. He's inconsistent. He's young. He's going to get better. He and Croft are okay. I'd love to see an addition there. Talked about the defensive line. It's just got to be better. Another area of need is linebacker. And one of the big takeaways yesterday is how much better Levi Wallace is than is Josh Norman. So there's that. But, you know, yesterday was a big day. And and Sean McDermott, I I want you to listen to two clips from Sean McDermott. The first one is McDermott addressing the team after the game, the meaning of this game. And then the second one is McDermott addressing the media with the meaning of this game. Take a listen to both of these clips. Hey, 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 Zim. 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 Zim.
Right? Humble and hungry goes a long way. Right? And humble and hungry, we're going to play them again. And we know we can play better than what we did today. Right. Let's go, Zim. Let's go, Zim. It gets me emotional, Heather. It does. I mean, I, you know, all week long we try and go through it. Hey, one day at a time, process, process, process. But we know, uh, we know what that, what this, uh, what this game means to our fan base, and um, just really, really special. Wish they could have been in the, in the building, honestly, to uh, to experience it. It would have been, it would have been crazy, I'm sure. And uh, hopefully, everyone at home enjoy it. So Sean McDermott definitely emotional, understands it. And, you know, for the fans, man, it's tough to, to finally be able to have those wins and not be able to take advantage of it. It's really somewhat unfortunate going forward that it didn't happen. So now we're looking at the AFC East, and that's step one. And I think the Dolphins are a team that are going to have to be reckoned with. Tua Tagovailoa yesterday wasn't great. The Dolphins' defense was, and they were opportunistic. The Dolphins score on both a kick return and an interception return. They get touchdowns that way. Tua, very pedestrian numbers, throws for less than 100 yards, but he took care of the football. He didn't do what Jared Goff did, didn't turn it over four times. So when you think about Tua and you think about the AFC East and where the Bills line up, I think the Dolphins are their biggest rival. But I think even more so what may be happening in New England, and today Belichick came out and said that Cam Newton's their quarterback. I want you to listen to Jay Glazer from the Fox pregame show yesterday on quarterbacking in the AFC East as far as Cam Newton and Tua Tonga Viola are concerned. Bring us Cam Newton. Well, he got benched last week, Jay. How short is the leash on his starting reign today? Yeah, well, it's not so short where if he makes one mistake, they're going to pull him, but it's also not so long. If he continues to make those mistakes, they're just going to let him go. And they are concerned about the number of errors he's had the last two weeks. And they understand because of COVID and he's been out. They understand. They get it. But he needs to pull together much faster than the, if he wants to stay in there. All right, we've all talked about Tua making his first start. Why now? Originally, their bye was supposed to be week 11, right? But because of COVID, it got moved up. And I think Brian Flores looked and said, we're in second place in this division. We have a legitimate shot. We know what Fitz's ceiling is. And I'm told Tua has been absolutely dynamic in practice. So they don't know what his ceiling is. So they're looking and saying, Tua may be the guy who could actually take us to a division title. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's where I think Tua, it, it's, it's interesting to hear he's been lighting it up in practice because it didn't make sense. And I think the fact that the, the bye week being moved kind of changed the way the game was going to be played, if you will, down in South Florida. And I found that interesting in that piece as well. As for Cam, you know, you look at the Patriots and you look at where they go from here. This year's shot, I think. I don't see them coming back. Question is, does Belichick go for one of the many free agent quarterbacks that are going to be available or maybe a trade route, or does he try to start over? Because I don't think the quarterback of the future in New England is on that roster right now. 
the best team in the NFL is the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I don't think there's a whole lot of debate there. They're the only undefeated team. Yesterday, they played their arch rival in a very good Baltimore Raven team. And that defense, led by T.J. Watt and Minka Fitzpatrick, made Lamar Jackson look like what a lot of people thought Lamar Jackson was going to look like when he came into the league. He didn't look like the MVP of the league that he was last year. Four turnovers by Lamar, it simply isn't the same same level of play that we saw last year. Now, I think in fairness to Lamar Jackson, it's got a lot to do with the way defenses are approaching him. Defensive coordinators had nothing to do during COVID, just like us, but they watched film, and they figured out the best ways to take away things from a guy who they still weren't sure could beat them fully down the field with their arm. You pay attention to the tight ends. You don't let them get loose on the read option runs, kind of a pick-your-poison type thing. And to the, my to the, my look liking this year, Lamar Jackson hasn't been as good. He's completing only 60% of his passes, 1,343 yards so far in the eight games. He's got 12 touchdowns, four interceptions, and he's only run for – 443 or 411 yards that's way less than he did last year when he had 1200 yards so Lamar's not been as good but yesterday give credit to that Steeler defense TJ Watt had eight quarterback pressures yesterday I don't know if there's ever been a brother duo who have made the defensive player of the year but there's a real possibility that T.J. Watt follows his brother, J.J. Watt, as a defensive player of the year. The Bengals got a win yesterday over Tennessee. I mentioned this earlier. And, and I know the NFL is a week-to-week league. I understand that. But this exemplifies how much of a week-to-week league it is. With Joe Burrow having two touchdowns, no picks, and an incredibly bad day to throw the football in the wind, Tennessee came into the into the game riding high, except for that one blip of a loss they had last week. And since he just took it to them, that was as strange of an outcome as I would have expected yesterday, but a great one nonetheless. So the Titans get another loss. They've now got two. And if you're a Bills fan, you know that this could potentially be a tiebreaker thing. This is a good thing. Joe Burrow, by the way, I've talked about this many times on the pod. The fact that he continues to improve and show what he can do, he's just an excellent, excellent quarterback. He's getting better every week, getting rid of the ball a little bit better, helping his offensive line help him. Really impressive to see what that young man is doing. Well, he's not that young. He's older than Lamar Jackson, who's in his third year. The Raiders beat the Browns yesterday. And as much as people are going to pile on Baker Mayfield because the Browns only scored six points, two factors. One, let's give the Raiders credit because they're a pretty good football team. Two, the wind yesterday was ridiculous. And and this is where I thought yesterday, as good as Kareem Hunt is, he's not Nick Chubb. And the Browns are really good when they have both Chubb and Hunt running the football, pounding the rock. 
the Raiders ran for 208 yards. Josh Jacobs ran for 128. Keep talking about it, the weather. This is the first weather weekend we've had this year. And you're seeing the teams that ran the football are coming away with the win. Look at Minnesota against Green Bay. Minnesota comes into this with one win. They roll the ball on the ground. Delvin Cook, 163 yards and four touchdowns. Just one of those kids, too, that when you watched him at Florida State, or when I did, I thought, this kid's going to be a star. And then he lasts to the second round, and you never know why. You hear the rumors of red flags or you know behavior off the field. Well, to this point, I don't know if there's been any issues that have been covered up, but Delvin Cook, if if I'm picking today, he's probably the second the NFL. So that's that's a really impressive thing to say. Delvin Cook, only in my opinion, behind one guy. And that one guy is Derrick Henry. And I could make the argument that Dalvin Cook may be better because he could catch the ball more. Team that I think we overlook a lot is the Indianapolis Colts. Colts are tough. Yesterday they beat the Lions 41 to 21. They had the ball for 37 minutes and 46 seconds. Last week I talked about coaches on the hot seat and said Matt Patricia winning a couple games has maybe cooled his hot seat off. Getting his defense run up the way it did yesterday is certainly going to be a factor in expediting his exit. The Colts' defense is very good. It's much better when Leonard is out there. He's a heck of a player. I mentioned Drew Locke and what he showed at the end of the game against the Chargers and how he got it done in the end of the game against the Chargers. That's an impressive win, last play of the game, getting it done. And it's just crazy to think about how that happened yesterday. And Anthony Lynn, I got to think, this is you know three years now of him finding ways to lose games. I like Anthony Lynn. I think he's a good man. I do think he's a good football coach. But the NFL is a results-oriented business. You got a rookie quarterback who's playing his butt off. You're two and five. Anthony Lynn's going to be coaching elsewhere, in my opinion, next year. I, I mentioned Russell Wilson, how great he's playing when the Bills have to play him again next week. 26 touchdowns now in just seven games. It's unbelievable what he's doing. And DK Metcalf, I remember the pre draft talk of DK Metcalf that the size and the speed didn't equal the production. He was just so big, so strong, so fast, but why wasn't he better? Well, he's been better in the NFL. He's been downright great in the NFL. The Saints and Bears game last night went to overtime. That was a good one. That was interesting and fun to watch. The thing is, I look at these two teams, and they're not similar, but I have the same question about them. Are either of them good? Every week it seems I watch the Saints and Alvin Kamara just shows things week in, week out. Michael Thomas, I don't know what's going on with him, but I got to think that if the Saints got an offer for Michael Thomas that looked good enough, they'd move him because they're winning games without him 
And if he's that much of a detriment to the team as he was a couple weeks ago starting a fight in practice, then maybe you're better off without him. I know he's a hell of a player, but this this is a team that they have so much talent. But then you go to Chicago, a team that I just don't think is very good. I, I really don't see a whole lot out of the Bears that I look at and go, well, they do that well. Well, they do that well. I, I, what do they do well? They rush the passer a little bit, I think. They've got some good players in the front seven. This is a typical Bears football team in that it's somewhat boring and somewhat awful, and at the same time, they're in the mix. So it's pretty crazy. The Sunday night game last night, and I got to talk about this. The Dallas Cowboys are a disaster, and a lot of that disaster has to do with injuries. You look at Dak Prescott not being there, that's obviously a huge factor. Dak could overcome a lot of things, and I think what's going on without him is going to get him signed, whether it be in Dallas or elsewhere. My man is going to make some cash and not just some chunky soups. Dak is negotiating a contract while being out, and that doesn't happen very often. Ben DiNucci last night he looked like a seventh-round pick, an afterthought. He doesn't belong starting in the NFL and, frankly, shouldn't be starting in the NFL, but necessity is the grandfather of intervention. I believe that's the the same. Yeah. They had to do something because Andy Dalton has been concussed and that game was just an awful football game. And if it wasn't the Cowboys, would that game have been flexed? Would they have moved that game off Sunday night football? You got two, two win football game teams going at it. And I got to say this about the Eagles and Carson Wentz. That's not a good football team either. I hear a lot of people defend them with the injuries. They've had horrible injuries. It's been a terrible, terrible situation. The Cowboys have lost three Pro Bowl offensive linemen. And if you count Travis Frederick, who retired just before the start of the year, three offensive linemen retired. And I'm sorry, not retired. Three are missing. Two are out for the season on IR and you lose your quarterback, it's a very bad situation in Dallas. As somebody who's never rooted for Jerry Jones, watching Jerry look so distraught is just one of those things that I've always kind of enjoyed, and I know that probably makes me a bad person. But, yeah, it's it's somewhat enjoyable. But there was a play last night where Ben DiNucci gets hit. He fumbles. The ball is recovered by the Eagles. Cowboy player rips it out while the Eagle player is laying on the ground. Replay doesn't overturn the subsequent walk-in touchdown that everyone assumed the play was dead because it should have been. But replay doesn't change. I've never been a fan of replay. I don't understand why we have replay when it doesn't get things right. Clear and obvious is supposed to be the standard for overturning things. If a guy laying on the ground, having the ball pinned to his chest while his opponent is ripping it out of his chest, isn't clear and obvious, then those two words, clear and obvious, are words I need to look up in the dictionary. Here's the other one. On Saturday in a college football game, and I want you to watch this clip because it's the greatest 
play of the college football season, even though it didn't count. Rutgers trying to come back. This play is unbelievable, but it gets called back for a forward lateral that was anything but clear and obvious. Check this out. Left. I've got seven defensive backs dropped left. Here's Jones making the catch, a little lateral to Bo Melton. Melton trying to lateral it back to, to Vedral, who laterals it to Raekwon O'Neal, who just <laughs> stood up high in the air. It's caught by Jones back at the 25. He cuts left to the 30, flips it up in the air. It's caught. Now who's got it? It's Vedral. Turns, throws it back. Rutgers has got Jones at the 50, to the 40, to the 30, to the 20. He's going to go. What just happened? You have to be kidding me. That was Bo Melton on the most unbelievable, ridiculous <laughs> Cal Stanford of 30, 40 years ago copycat play. And it is ruled a touchdown right now. See, that's one of those things that's not clear and obvious that that was a poor lateral. It may have been. It may have been a situation where it needs to come back. But it's not clear and obvious. It's replay gets a lot of things right. But for how much we slow the game down, how much it changes the way the game is played, I simply cannot be a proponent of replay in any way. It just isn't something that I'm good with. I really think replay is continuing to expand. We saw last year the disaster that was trying to challenge pass interference calls. But now replay has just jumped the shark because we're getting things wrong every week when we look at it. That Josh Allen interception the first of the year that Tyler Croft had and got ripped out of his hands. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen. Replay isn't helping us. And Al Riveron, the guy who's ultimately responsible for the decisions made to overturn a replay, that guy's got to go. I don't know what Dean Blandino would take to get back in that role. That's a role that was created for Dean Blandino. And he walked away to take the money on television. He saw his friend Mike Pereira making a lot of money just going on TV once in a while, making a statement. Well, whatever it costs the NFL to bring him back and bring some integrity back to that position, spend it. And as for Rutgers, that was a play that I'm sure people will be talking about forever. It won't be the Stanford band play because that was a winning touchdown at the end of a game. But this one might have been better. When the big man throws it over his head, just throws it up in the air. It's fantastic. Well, I'm talking about college football. I want to talk about one of those guys that he has a lot of defenders, and I'm not one of them. Jim Harbaugh is a damn good football coach. Jim Harbaugh is not a football coach who's making money, making the money that he 
He's not earning his paycheck. Let me say it that way. It's easy for me to say. Harbaugh's paid $8 million a year. He's on par with the big dogs of college football, the Dabo Sweeney's, the Nick Saban's, when Urban Meyer was at Ohio State. It, Harbaugh makes as much as any of them. He's got zero national championships. He's never made the playoff. He's five years into his situation at Michigan. This is his sixth year. He's 0-5 against Ohio State. Saturday's loss to Michigan State, which they were double-digit favorite, dropped them to 3-3 three and three against Michigan State. He's 3-2 and two against Penn State. The one other big school that they play a lot, Notre Dame, he's 1-1. One one. He doesn't win the games. He's paid $8 million to win. Harbaugh has always been a vagabond and always traveling from the next, you know, to the next better job. And he ended up back home at his alma mater in Michigan. And I don't think there's a next better job for him. And I'm not saying he needs to be fired because he certainly doesn't. He's, he's done a good job with the program. The program's a good program. It's not a great program. But here's the thing. If you're paid to be great and you're not, then something's wrong. It's like signing a guy to, to play left field and you're happy that he's hitting 250 with 25 home runs and 75 RBIs, but you're paying him the same as the guy down the road who is hitting 320 with 45 home runs and 130 RBIs. Jim Harbaugh is a good college football coach. He's not a great coach. He's paid like a great coach. He's at a college, Michigan, where they have a lot of pride and a lot of fans. And I know it's different this year. Everything's different. You don't have 100,000 in the big house going crazy, providing that home field experience. But guess what? It's different for everybody. And your talent is better than Michigan State's talent by a lot, or at least it was when it got to the program. And if you haven't developed them, and who's he really developed at quarterback? He hasn't. That should be his forte. It should be what he does best. It's just strange. And, again, I know a lot of Michigan fans defend Harbaugh, but it's getting harder and harder to defend them. And watching Ohio State against Penn State, Ohio State could do whatever they wanted with Ryan Day. He's taken over for Urban Meyer. It's been seamless. The thing with Ohio State, when they play Michigan, that might be a 20-point win. And then – I think knocking at the door for Harbaugh gets a lot louder. College football uh, all the way back this weekend because the Pac-10 begins their schedule as well. So we're going to see the teams that come back. And, of course, the biggest game this weekend is Clemson without Trevor Lawrence going against Notre Dame. And I, I really think this. Clemson, if they were to lose this game, still will likely make the playoff because there's nobody else in the ACC that's going to give them a good run. So Clemson will likely still make the playoff. I would think Alabama makes the playoff. Ohio State looks like they'll make the playoff. That means the rest of college football is playing for one spot. If Notre Dame beats Clemson, and I know it's not with Trevor Lawrence, it's without, remember, the playoff is a reality TV show where you want eyeballs on the product. The eyeballs on the product for Notre Dame being there would certainly be worth it 
to get them into the playoffs. So keep an eye on that as we go forward. The hot stove league now begins with, you don't know what I mean. You're not a baseball fan. Traditionally, the winter offseason, the free agents, the trades, all those things are called the are called the hot stove league. And that now begins because the baseball season is over on Friday. The Mets had a chance to get a new owner approved by Major League Baseball. And Steve Cohen, the billionaire who's now the richest owner in the NFL, was approved. And this, if you're a Mets fan like me, can't be any worse than it was before. I don't care what you thought of before. No way Steve Cohen ends up to be a worse owner than the Wilpons. He'll at least treat people right and at least have decency or bring decency. At least I hope he will to the owner's situation. What I wonder, though, going into this year, this is a very unique year in so many ways. Baseball's certainly no different. Revenues are down huge. Teams didn't sell a ticket this past year. Yes, they got their TV money, but they still had to pay prorated salaries. So every team in baseball, probably at best, broke even. You've seen layoffs in front offices. You've seen teams being cut from the minor league systems. What do you think is going to happen with free agency? First off, you're seeing a whole lot of players opt in. And Yankee fans, I'm sorry to tell you, Giancarlo Stanton was one of them. Don't worry. Seven more years, $218 million. It'll go by so quick you'll hardly even know he was a bad player for the Yankees for a long time. But when you look at this offseason, I got to think that the money is going to be different this year. The guy who might have got $25 million a couple years ago, he's going to sign this year for about seventeen. I really think that's going to happen. And I think because the money's going to be down, you're going to see guys wait longer in hopes that things turn around with the COVID and allow fans to go to the ballpark and allow tickets to be sold. And if that's the case, then they could possibly cash in even though they sign a little bit later. So keep an eye on that for sure, because the, the hot stove is going to be interesting and, you know, it's, it's funny with, with Steve Cohen now owning the Mets and the Mets expecting to be run like a big market team, which they haven't been under the Wilpon regime. When you look at Steve Cohen getting that opportunity, you, you got to think this too. Does this mean that the Yankees now have to compete with the Mets for the back page and possibly even for some players? Wouldn't be the first time that's happened. And I think it's interesting to keep an eye on going forward. Do the Yankees make moves because the Mets are making moves? Do the Yankees compete with guys because the Mets are going after the same guy? Are the Yankees going to try and drive the price up on Steve Cohen a little bit? So this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out, not just with the Mets and Yankees, but all across baseball, I think there's going to be really good talent available late for the patient teams. I think bullpen help is going to be available for the teams that are smart. And if you look at the way the game is played, it's all about the bullpen now. So this offseason, like many other things in 2020, is going to be an incredibly unique offseason in many ways. And then, of course, 
you've got the NBA and NHL both trying to figure out how to come back, how to schedule their season, how to get things done. The NBA, for their part, they've got a problem, and it's a financial problem. They had terrible ratings in the bubble last year. Uh, a lot of it can be blamed on people being turned off for whatever political aspirations or affiliations they have. A lot of it could be talked about the fact that it was just boring without the fans. A lot of people didn't like that some of the teams weren't invited to the bubble. For whatever reason, the NBA ratings were down and down big. And TV partners are the reason why the NBA money over the last couple of years has gone up and up and up. Guys like Steph Curry signing $45 million a year deals. Well, those deals are still having to be paid by the owners. And with the likelihood of them not being able to sell tickets, it's going to be another financially draining year going forward for the owners in the NBA. So now, how do you handle this? Well, you've got to satisfy your TV partners because that money is the biggest part of the money and it's one sure thing that you can get back this year. Here's the problem. The NBA can't play a full season. If you think about it, we're in November. The NBA should be underway. Usually starts in, in late October. Well, they haven't even had the NBA draft yet. So they're not close to starting the season. Here's the other part of it. They just got done playing in September. So you've only had about a month and a half off. The NBA is trying to force a situation to save money. Estimates are that if they can start on Christmas Day, which is the NBA's big day year in, year out, that it would save them about $500 million. $500 million. It's a lot of money. There's 30 teams it's about $17 million per team, $16 million per team. That's a lot of money. I get it. But here's the thing. If you were to do that and you have a 72-game season, as is projected, you're now getting teams playing a lot of back-to-backs. You're jamming games in to try and get that season in. And back-to-backs amount to bad basketball. Guys are tired. Guys sit out. Kawhi Leonard, load management. You know you're going to see it. The best NBA regular season of the last several years was the year that they had 50 games because of the strike-shortened season. The NBA, once again, has an opportunity. They could start on Martin Luther King Day. And I think that would be a huge message to their fans. And I think it would be a great message to their fans. Start mid-January. You go through mid-April. You have a 50-game schedule. And hope that when 21-22 comes around, the season that is, that you can get back to normalcy. But right now, it's not about getting back to normalcy for the NBA. It's about getting as much money as you can. Here's the problem. With that approach, it may very well be short-sighted. Even though it's an astronomical amount of money, the less eyeballs on your product now, the less chance you're going to have a chance to duplicate the television contracts that you've signed most recently. 
And that's where I think the NBA is short-sighted. Maybe take a step back, but give your television partners a better product. And I think that's where the NBA ultimately wins. Because if you play a shortened season, every game matters more. All of a sudden, you're in a situation where you've got guys really going out and getting after it, balling every night, every game, trying to get a win. People start watching, start enjoying it. It's a better product. Ratings ultimately go up, and your television partners come back, and they're happy with the adjustments that you made. So keep your eye on all of that as well. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much. Election Day, get out and vote whatever side you're on. Hey, vote, accept the results, and go forward as a unified country. That is my request to you because nothing matters about us. It's about about you. It's about us, all of us. We all are in this together. So enjoy Election Day. Have a good week. Talk to you next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk and Around Podcast.